Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, I want to apologize for the lack of images on the show page for last week's episode about art and empire at the San Diego Museum of Art. We asked. We asked repeatedly. The museum is unique among substantial American art museums in that it outsources its communications to a private firm, and that firm did not reply to our emails. Naturally, if they do, we'll add the images. On to this week. My guest, Anna O'Marley, is the curator of From the Schuylkill to the Hudson, Landscapes of the Early American Republic at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philadelphia. The exhibition wields Papa's collection to consider Philadelphia as a significant, even primary, locus of landscape painting in the early 19th century. It argues that Philadelphia's interest in the genre preceded New York and the Hudson River region's interest. The show is on view through December 29th. The exhibition catalog was published by PAFA. On the second segment, Legion of Honor curator Kirk Nickel discussing several of the major paintings in early Rubens at the Legion of Honor. Please rate and review us at your podcatcher of choice. Algorithms are needy creatures. Anna Marley, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O. Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O. Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at The Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. Anna Marley, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be on the show. This exhibition, which comes uh, mostly or entirely from uh, your very fine early American collection, argues that before there was what art historians have labeled the Hudson River School and before what art historians have mostly not labeled the White Mountain School, there was a Schuylkill River School that effectively initiated American art's interest in nature uh, and in what Emerson would later define as landscape. So what might we call the Schuylkill River School and why should we think about it that way? My whole career, I've been really interested in thinking about what came before the Hudson River School. I did my undergraduate degree at Vassar College on the Hudson River, and I actually took a senior seminar with uh, Daniel Peck, who was one of your recent guests. And so the Hudson River has loomed really large in my life, but I was always really fascinated with the 18th century, and I knew that like any American mythology, landscape painting was a mythology and did not come fully born out of the brain of Thomas Cole in 1825 when he went up the Hudson River. So my dissertation, which I finished 10 years ago at the University of Delaware, explored British and American connections and how American landscape derived out of British imperial practices in the Atlantic world from the period of the French and Indian Wars 
in the 1750s through the War of 1812. So when I came to Philadelphia, I had had all this training in looking at American and British paintings up and down the eastern seaboard and then across the ocean in Great Britain and then in the Caribbean, as well as in Canada, which is where I was born and raised. So I was really interested in that Atlantic world element. But then I came to Philadelphia and I started working with our collection here at PAFA. Now, PAFA was founded in 1805 as the oldest art museum and art school in in the United States. We're only the second art academy in the new in in North America. We were founded after the Academy San Carlos in Mexico City. So we've been around for a long time. And what surprised me is that. In all the years that we've been here, we've been exhibiting landscape painting since our first annual exhibition in 1811, but nobody's ever really done a, a exhibition on landscape painting in Philadelphia. And I think like everybody else, I just bought into the assumption that it all got started in New York. But there were major practicing painters in Philadelphia uh, since the uh, 1770s, working in the genre of landscape painting. So that was really the starting point for thinking about this this Schuylkill River School, this group of artists that come out of British imperial traditions and emerge with the new republic in Philadelphia, which was the economic and cultural scientific hub of the new republic. So with whom does the tradition start in Philadelphia and what British material, if you will, so not just British painting, of course, informed it? So the exhibition begins with about two works from the 1770s. One is a print called The Cataract of Niagara. That's from 1774, so just two years before the Revolution. That was actually printed in Great Britain, but it's based on a military topographic drawing of Niagara Falls from the 1760s. And what's really important about that print, other than the fact that it's absolutely stunning and a great example of uh, 18th century British engraving practices, is that it was done by a military artist. So many of these early British artists who were capturing the landscape in the United States were trained by the British military. So they were trained at Greenwich, and they were trained to do topographic illustration to capture the landscape for military, imperial, and colonial purposes. Then the landscape, these paintings, these, these drawings taken on the spot were sent back to Great Britain. They were maybe turned into beautiful landscape paintings, and then prints were made, and then they were sent back to the United States. So there's this British military impetus in behind images like that. Then uh, the other earliest work is a conversation piece portrait by Charles Wilson Peale of John Dickinson from 1770. Now, Charles Wilson Peale is a great American artist. He's really associated with the beginning of art in the United States. He was indeed one of our founders here at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. But like these British military artists, he was trained by British imperial practices. So a group of patrons got the money together, wealthy people from Philadelphia and Annapolis, to send him to Great Britain to study with Benjamin West at the Royal Academy. So again, he's, he's learning his practices from the elite British painters. And so he comes back to the United States and he does this great portrait of John Dickinson in front of the falls of the Schuylkill. And it's a really important conversation style, conversation piece portrait, which is a portrait of a figure set in front of a landscape. So sort of in this period when before landscape comes to become the full-blown dramatic painting that it will become later in the 19th century, it's a background. But the landscape is incredibly important in this painting because John Dickinson was a revolutionary, and he wrote 
these letters debating the Townsend Act, these anonymous letters from a farmer, and he first read them out at the Fort St. David Fishing Company, which was a gentleman's fishing club on the Schuylkill River. And so the Schuylkill River has this really important connection with the revolution, with independence. So it's, it, it's represented in a very sort of picturesque British way, but it is very specifically American and incredibly attached to the political identity of Philadelphia in the years leading up to the revolution. In this painting, the Schuylkill and the Falls are, are the part of, of the land and landscape behind Dickinson that are in the light. They are, they are pushed forward by, by Peel putting them in, in the light. You can't miss it. Yes, that's definitely true. And Peel uh, would become a pretty good landscape painter eventually, although he was often encouraged by his patrons to paint landscapes. They often wanted landscapes for above their chimney piece for overmantles. And he sometimes would decline them. He felt he was much better as a portrait painter. But by the time he moved out to his retirement home, Belfield, in the early 19th century, he is doing these wonderful uh, little detailed landscape paintings like his cabbage patch painting, the gardens at Belfield. So he's kind of like a, a gentleman farmer now along this like Jeffersonian mode. And he becomes more of a landscape painter than rather than the portraitist that he is, is best known for. One might say that uh, there's an advance that comes at the end of the 18th century in a James Peel painting in your show, the artist and his family. It shows seven people. How are they in the landscape differently than Dickinson is in Charles Wilson Peel's landscape? James Peel is Charles Wilson Peel's brother, his younger brother. So Charles has the opportunity to go to Great Britain and train in the metropolis at London. James does not. He studies with his brother back in Philadelphia. And James has a whole family of young artists that he is rearing and that's who you can see in in this painting it's it's in the conversation piece style but what is so different about this than the landscapes you might see in Great Britain in the 18th century earlier is James seems to be gesturing to his children as the site of his perhaps wealth or power. He's not gesturing to land that he owns. The Peels were not wealthy. We're not even quite sure exactly where on the Schuylkill this scene was depicted, but we do know that it's the Schuylkill River. Let me just jump in for a quick second. We can see the Schuylkill River in the background of the painting, so we can. So it's not imagined. It's physically there. Yeah. No. It's specifically, specifically the Schuylkill River in the background of the painting. But we... James Peel did not own a great estate on the Schuylkill River, so it's it in some ways it might be an idealized version. But I do love how he's gesturing to his family and to his daughters, actually, in, in this painting. Unlike in the previous Peel painting, the foreground is foregrounded. You know, there there's grass and weeds. We are, we are put into place. The other great detail in this painting I really love is that the the James Peel daughter on the far right of the painting, the, I don't know, what would you call it, ribbon, uh, satin? The sash? Yeah, it interacts with the foliage on the far right. And, and another insistence that we are at the place rather than in front of a background. Yeah, that's a wonderful detail. And, and there is that sort of motion as if she's running part out of the foliage. It's really fantastic. When we, or at least I, think of portraits that feature Americans against land or landscape in the late 18th and early 19th century, we often think, I often think of Ralph Earl. I don't think he was a Philadelphian. How do we think, you know, do we think the Peels were looking at Earl, knew Earl? Does Earl fit in here at all? You know, we do not own a, a great Ralph Earl here at PAFA, and Ralph Earl played a large part in my dissertation because I was really interested in the power of the Connecticut River Valley, which is a different, important economic river in in the early republic. But he wasn't in Philadelphia. So I would think that P 
Peel, Charles Wilson and James Peel, were working for a different patron base uh, here in Philadelphia than Ralph Earl was up in Connecticut. But they are coming out of the same sort of British training. And I believe Ralph Earl also was trained at the Royal Academy, that he, like Peel, traveled. I'm not a Ralph Earl expert. There are not enough Ralph Earl experts. <laughs> I know, but I love him. I love his work. And I particularly love the sort of, there's one portrait that he did of a couple sitting with a view of outside their house, there's a view of their house, and they're in their house. I just love that, that emphasis on ownership. And I think a lot about how landscapes were displayed in domestic interiors. In particular, that's what my whole dissertation was about, how overmantel paintings are, are sort of windows into a sort of idealized ownership of either your own property or a sort of fantastical property. I start my dissertation by thinking about George Washington, and it's interesting that you bring up the term landscape, because in the 1750s, when George is fighting the French and Indian Wars, he's actually also decorating his front parlor at Mount Vernon. And he writes to his factor, who is his buyer in London, and says, please send me a neat landscape. And what he gets sent is a sort of generic Claudian-style view of a harbor. And that's inserted in the overmantel in his front parlor. And I write in my dissertation about what it must have been like to sit in that front parlor. That was the best room in his home at the time when he returned from the French and Indian Wars in the 1760s and have this Claudian Harbor scene on his country estate. He's never been to England, but he knows exactly what the British nobility have in their home, which is, if they're lucky, a real Claude or a real Poussin. So he's going to get a neat landscape version of that for his front parlor. And he has that complemented with Chinese export China scenes and figurines of Roman heroes. So he's got he's got the whole Cincinnati thing going on in his front parlor. He's got his Claudian landscape. He's got his figurines, Roman heroes. He's got his Chinese export wear. And this is not unrelated to my show, because in the 1790s, George Washington is redecorating Mount Vernon again, and he builds then what's called his new dining room. And again, he gets landscape paintings for that dining room. But what does he get now in the 1790s? He gets paintings by George Beck. And what does he ask George Beck to paint? He asks him to paint the Potomac River. And specifically, George Washington is invested in putting a canal on the Potomac River. And he orders that painting from George Beck, a British artist in Philadelphia. So don't forget, in the 1790s, Philadelphia is the capital city, and it is the home of the Republican court. So everyone is here, even though he's thinking about going back to Mount Vernon and decorating his dining room. He's here in Philadelphia. He commissions this artist, George Beck, to do this painting for him. And then after, like probably the year after that paint is painted, Beck does a beautiful painting of the Schuylkill River, which we just purchased for our exhibition. I bought it actually two weeks before the show opened, so it was a little nerve-wracking for me. <laughs> but it's the first... 18th century painting I've been able to buy for our collection, which is something I'm thrilled about because I am actually an 18th century scholar. And, you know, you don't really get to, that is not to everybody's taste these days. But luckily, my board saw the importance of it, that Beck was here, he was painting, he was commissioned by George Washington just probably one or two years before this painting of the Schuylkill got painted. And again, this it's the same story as the Potomac, because the Schuylkill River is, is there's a Schuylkill River Canal Company. They're about to build a canal, they're about to make the Schuylkill navigable, and they're going to also start building the waterworks. And the waterworks plays a huge part in this exhibition. 
and a huge part in defining the early republic in Philadelphia in the early 19th century. But they're going, they're about to dam the picturesque Falls of the Schuylkill, which is what you can see in the painting but of the, the Charles Wilson Peel painting. And you see this picturesque area with these little fishermen. And remember, that's where the Fort St. David's Fishing Company is. So these sort of revolutionary gentlemen. And he's depicting these rivers, this like amazing, very picturesque, very beautiful watercolor, like a, an opaque gouache watercolor. And that painting from the 1790s may be the earliest painted view of the Schuylkill in existence. Nobody has yet shown me another one that, that we know of. There, there are definitely some others from the 1790s, but they're exceedingly, exceedingly rare. And I love it because it really shows the economic importance of rivers, the fact that Beck kept painting them and people like George Washington keep buying them. They are totally associated uh, not only with beauty, which is the way me, we might think of them today, but with the economic health of the new nation. You mentioned the word landscape. That is the Dutch word from which the English language would take the word landscape. The transition of the word from the Dutch into the English and then into American English was actually kind of slow. So as your fine example points out, English speakers used the Dutch word for a number of decades before Anglic anglicizing, Anglic anglicizing it. Let's skip ahead to Thomas Doughty. You talked about the British influence on, on the Peels. Where does Doughty come from and what does he add? Thomas Doughty and Thomas Birch are are the sort of uber Schuylkill River School artists. They're the artists that in the 1820s are spreading the view of, of Philadelphia and of the Schuylkill River around the world. And it's done through their paintings and then prints made after their paintings that were on display at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. So Thomas Doughty, unlike Charles Wilson Peale, does not get to go to study at the Royal Academy in London. He receives his training from, you know, looking at copies of old masters that he may have been able to see on exhibition in, at, in Philadelphia. So it's interesting that you should say you see a more Dutch influence in there. Definitely his, his skies are quite more romantic, maybe even a little bit Constable-esque. He probably would have seen print sources, but he might also have been looking at works by Roysdale and seeing those. And so in the early 1820s, when Thomas Cole starts displaying his work, he and Thomas Doughty are, are described as the sort of masters that one should look at. But by the 1830s, Thomas Cole has ascended and Thomas Doughty has gone down. And I think that is because he, he never quite leaves behind this sort of more modest, romantic, soft, beautiful depiction of the landscape, whereas Thomas Cole and Hudson River School move into a much more dramatic narrative storytelling quality that Thomas Doughty just never really gets to. When Americanists get together and Dowdy gets mentioned, there's often kind of a wincing smile and a nod, and everybody immediately goes on to the next thing, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you should say that, because I just, went before we were speaking, had the opportunity to take some colleagues of mine from the Birmingham Museum of Art around. And we have a Thomas Dowdy in the show that's a n total knockout. Landscape with Kurt. Yeah, sorry. Not, it's not Landscape with Curving River, actually, which that one is beautiful, but it's, uh, it's alone for the show. It's called Landstorm, and it is the only painting that I know of that Doughty did in the sublime mode. And by sublime, I mean the Burkean idea that a landscape can be so terrifying that it's beautiful. And we don't think of the Schuylkill River as being particularly terrifying. But what he has shown here is he's shown an uprooted tree. He's shown stormy clouds. You can actually feel the wind pushing this shepherd figure down 
down the the steep roads that lead into the Schuylkill River from the Wissahickon. And uh, we had a we had a major storm here recently. And I live in a neighborhood called Mount Airy, which is just above the the Wissahickon. And then that it, when I come down to work, I come down the Wissahickon and then pass the Schuylkill. And I can't tell you how many downed trees I saw in that storm and I'm like oh my god Dowdy got it right he wasn't just thinking about (laughs) sublime views from the lake country he really was you know this really was a sort of wilderness outside the city in the 1820s and and I I do say sometimes like I invented this term the Schuylkill River School in as much as anybody rent, invented the term the Hudson River School but there was actually this gang of guys that would go out John Nagel Thomas Birch Thomas Doughty Sully who didn't like to paint landscapes but went with them and they would go spend the day out on the Schuylkill and the Wissahickon painting these landscapes so they were a group, even though they would not have referred to themselves as the Schuylkill River School. So in a way, not, not, not exactly, but in a way, the show and your essay in the book build to Thomas Cole. And I think it's probably inevitable for any exhibition of pre-Thomas Cole painting in, in North America to build to Cole. You know, the reason Americanists kind of wince at, at Dowdy before getting to Cole is because Cole becomes an immensely better painter. So what is the Cole what is the Cole Philadelphia link and what influence did Philadelphia have on Cole? So Cole studied in Philadelphia in the eighteen twenties. So we all know from the great work that the Kornhauser and Behringer show at the Met last year about Cole's you know, growing up in industrial England. That's Betsy Kornhauser and Tim Berenger. Yes. Yes. Great, wonderful show. But what was discouraging to me about that show is, is, is it's sort of virtual, willful lack of consideration for Philadelphia, which until at least 1825 was the artistic center of the United States. And the whole first half of this exhibition focuses on work produced in Philadelphia from the 1770s into the 1820s and 30s. So, of course, Thomas Cole came to Philadelphia. He didn't go to New York first. He came to Philadelphia. And uh, we had one of the best cast collections in the United States here at PAFA. So he studied from cast collection, the cast collection here, doing drawings in the academic mode after the, the casts. And then he also took part in the annual exhibitions. And I really think that there was this aha moment for him in 1824 in particular, which was when he showed his first work here at PAFA. And in 1824, Thomas Birch exhibits his 1821 painting, The Fairmont Waterworks. Now that painting is the cover for our catalog and it's really the the poster child for this exhibition. Thomas Cole told the early American art historian Dunlap that his heart sank when he stood before the landscapes of Thomas Birch. And I think that this painting in particular is what may have done it. Birch was uh, the son of William Birch, who was a great engraver and miniature painter and defined the early republic by many of his views of Philadelphia that were distributed in prints. And Thomas was a great painter. He becomes particularly well-known in the War of 1812 for his maritime scenes. But this painting of Fairmont Waterworks is really a tour de force. It shows everything. It shows the canal that I was talking about, the Schuylkill River Canal. It shows the first steamboat that could navigate up the Schuylkill River because The canal was created, the dam was made, the waterworks was created to create this amazing source of clean, fresh water for the city of Philadelphia. Now that that waterworks image, the waterworks actually remained the top tourist destination in the United States until the 1850s when Niagara Falls takes over. I know that's hard to believe, (laughs) but 
In fact, Charles Dickens came to visit the waterworks in the 1850s and was so taken by it. He said, Philadelphians are so replete for water that it's showered and jerked about everywhere. So, I mean, I think we have to go back and think about what Philadelphia would have, and the United States would have been like in the 1790s when there's all these like yellow fever outbreaks and there's no clean drinking water. And then you look at like London and, you know, there's, there's not a lot of good, clean drinking water there. So then Philadelphia gets to develop this amazing water production system that's built in this very classical uh, way. It looks like a temple to hygiene. And it is this image that becomes so incredibly important to marking Philadelphia. It's it's sent all over the world in ceramics and prints. Let me jump in for a quick second on that. The city was so proud of the waterworks and indeed this birch painting that it was gifted to y'all in 1845, um, less than a generation after it had been painted. You're right. <laughs> but what what strikes me about the popularity of this imagery is that it becomes, it's put on an engraving in 1824, and then you see it appear in ceramics that are made in Great Britain, but also probably that are hand-painted in China as well by 1825. It becomes so popular in representing the early Republican United States. So I like to think of Thomas Cole standing before that painting. And if you compare his works, you know, if you if you look at what he was painting in 1824-25, you can see why Birch would have intimidated him. You know, Birch's style is meticulous. He got that from his father's training as a miniature and engraved painter. His observation of details like boats is masterful because he grew up looking at how boats were made in Philadelphia. And his landscapes are gorgeous. The detail of like looking at Lemon Hill, this country estate that's right up behind the waterworks is stunning. And I love his, I just love his skies the blue and the, the, the sort of pink creaminess of the clouds are delectable. So I think about Cole seeing that and thinking about the Schuylkill Canal and the rivers. And then in 1825, as we know, he goes up and he does his travel on the Hudson River, not accidentally the same time that the Erie Canal is revealed to great fanfare to you know the world. And then also the National Academy of Design is founded in 1825 in New York. So New York suddenly becomes the Empire State with the Erie Canal effectively connecting the Atlantic Ocean, the Hudson River, all the way up towards the Great Lakes and Niagara Falls. So it's no wonder that this artist who had been in Philadelphia goes to New York and decides, okay, the Hudson River is where it's at, because it was economically. One of the interesting things about that birch is it is not exactly, not quite a panoramic view of the Schuylkill and the waterworks, but it's kind of one. And it's closer than Cole was able to do in those years. So that birch is, is 21 if we compare it to Cole's Distant View of Niagara, which is an 1830 painting and which is represented in your show by a print, Cole didn't have quite figured out how to do that thing that Birch was doing yet. In, in Cole's Niagara, it's almost like looking at Niagara Falls through like a tilt shift. The proportions and perspective is just off. Yeah, the perspective that, that Birch has in in this painting is remarkable. And again, he probably got a lot of that from training with his father and doing these very rigidly perspectival views of the city of Philadelphia, which was the first print series that William Birch does that is amazingly popular, these city views of Philadelphia. When William does the the country estates of the United States, that does not succeed so much. And I think that's because by this later time in the early republic when he does them. Americans are very consciously trying to think of themselves as a democratic republic, and country house views are not as successful as the city views of like buildings like banks and things like that. Americans 
whether I think they don't like to associate themselves with this view of aristocratic power, whether or not that's what's really driving the economy. You know, I think that the sort of like mythos of American democracy is a little stronger than the actual reality. But that that print series does not become successful. But Thomas learns all that perspectival genius from his father. And it really takes Thomas Cole a longer time to get there. We don't have an early Thomas Cole painting in the show. One I often have people look at is the PMA has a view of Fort Putnam from 1825. And actually, that looks much more similar to Dowdy. If you look at that, you know, he's probably looking to Doughty, the coloration, the way the trees are treated, the clouds, that's probably what he's doing. I think he probably thinks, oh, God, I can't do birch, so let's try out a Doughty style, who's also exhibiting, you know, beautiful paintings in the 1820s at PAFA. And then, of course, by the 1830s, when we get to the Oxbow, the the painting that everybody must mention, he's totally mastered. (laughs) He's mastered sky, he's mastered trees, he's mastered light effects, perspective, all of that. View of Fort Putnam, we'll have it on manpodcast.com, of course, is also a little perspectively off, a little coloristically. A little, the light of the distant hill just doesn't just doesn't work. One of the things that's interesting about your having the, the print after Cole's Falls of Niagara in the show and not the painting is that the printmaker got the perspective right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the printmaker fixed Cole. The reason we have that is because we have these great pairings in the show that are in the middle of the show. And I do hope people can come see the show in Philadelphia. It's up till the end of December. But we have the print, the Fenner, Sears & Co. after Thomas Cole paired with a beautiful Staffordshire Ware Adams & Sons platter that was made in England. It's a transferware platter showing the files of Falls of Niagara. So we have the print source, and then we have the platter, and it's also displayed next to a pairing of a Philadelphia scene. So it's Mendenhall Ferry on the Schuylkill after a print by William Russell Birch that's shown on a Stubbs transferware platter from the from 1825, and. I have these two paired in a in a section of the exhibition called the print room because I really wanted to suggest that the importance of women in in the exhibition so all of these artists are white males but many women would have actually been making the transferware. So it was probably working class women working in factories in Great Britain actually applying these prints. And Although men were collecting the fine art prints, women were also collecting them, and they were displaying them in their home, and they were copying them. We have a wonderful drawing by a schoolgirl that's a copy after a print from Godey's Ladies Book of people walking very picturesquely in Laurel Hill Cemetery on the, on the Schuylkill, and it's, that's this part of the rural cemetery movement and a place of refined leisure where women could walk safely. And I love that the one work that we have by a female artist is a drawing of that space that she copied after a print. So prints were a way for women to be more involved in this very masculine genre of landscape representation. Anna Marley, thanks so much. The multidisciplinary artist Lisa Rehana opens her first exhibition in the continental United States this Saturday at San Francisco's de Young Museum. Titled In Pursuit of Venus Infected, it features a 70-foot-long video scroll depicting live-action vignettes juxtaposed with the historic French wallpaper on which it is based. Rehana's work will prompt you to ask yourself, who controls the narrative of history and how do images shape our understanding of that narrative? In Pursuit of Venus Infected opens this Saturday and closes January 5th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. This summer at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, see Barbara Hammer in This Body, a world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and LGBT cinema icon. Cecilia Vicuña, Lo Precario, The Precarious, a collection of more than 50 of the Chilean-born artists' lyrical, intimately scaled sculptures, 
and Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Legion of Honor curator Kirk Nickel. Along with National Gallery of Canada director Sasha Suda, Nickel has co-curated Early Rubens at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. With about 30 paintings and 20 drawings, the show examines work Rubens made from 1609, when he was in his early 30s, until 1621. This segment previously ran in extended form back in May. I want to touch on a couple of uh, really dramatic paintings, um, including... Uh, what is surely the most famous painting in the show for American audiences, and that's Daniel in the Lion's Den from the National Gallery of Art. Well, two things. First, why would Rubens have been interested in painting such an enormous thing of this particular biblical epic shortly after returning to Antwerp? The Daniel in the Lion's Den is a tremendously affecting painting. It's uh, both because of its scale and the subject matter of the Few paintings in Rubens' body of work have the impact of his Daniel in the Lion's Den. This is a painting he executes in the middle years of this decade that our exhibition focuses on. And it, it's connected also to a, a really wonderful moment in the history of, the, of art. And it's connected to a really insightful episode in the history of art, where Rubens is exchanging correspondence with Dudley Carleton, the man who will ultimately own this painting. The scene shows Daniel having gotten crossways with the Babylonian king for refusing to pray to him rather than to his own god, having been cast into this pit of ten ferocious wild cats, some of which are stalking around him, bellowing. Some are asleep, some are circling each other. You almost get a sense of the, the human emotion and variety of human emotion that, that Rubens often brings out in collections of people. He's here displaced onto these, these 10 lions. The scene in Rubens' correspondence with Carlton, he mentions that he has a number of paintings, including the Daniel, that he has available to trade to Carlton for the ancient sculptures that Carlton is trying to exchange. And in this correspondence, we have him talking about the values of these works and connecting them to how much of his own participation is involved in the paintings and the size of the paintings. For the Daniel, he mentions specifically that it is, quote, original entirely by my hand, end quote. And you just get the sense that Rubens has a number of very large paintings sitting around his workshop, that, that he's working at this scale, not necessarily with these paintings having been commissioned. In fact, it seems quite the opposite, that he's making these on spec and trying to develop a market for these large paintings, things that would potentially be substitutes for tapestries. And in fact, in his correspondence with Carlton, he specifically states that his paintings can't be valued the way that tapestries are valued, which are, are priced by measure. He also talks about the narrative choice. And in this case, it's a scene that comes from the Bible, referring to a scene of Abraham dismissing Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, Reuben says that the scene is neither sacred nor profane, although drawn from the Holy Scriptures. And that idea, that conception that, that he's gone to the Bible, and it's often stories of the Hebrew Bible, that he draws on in the same way that he would draw on mythology for an interesting story that's psychologically dense and complex is a feature of Rubens' work that is, that's played out throughout his career. Some religious subject matters are for churches, are for devotional contexts, but he also goes to those same textual sources to find works that would be appreciated by collectors and connoisseurs for the 
insight that they give into human nature or tense situations. Certainly the Daniel in the lion's den qualifies for that. Two more paintings I want to raise. I'm embarrassed to say I had not known the Annunciation that's in Vienna before, you know, about a week ago. <laughs> An Annunciation's a, a fairly standard subject, obviously. What makes Rubens's Annunciation painted, um, again, just after he arrived in Antwerp, so exceptional? So this is an incredibly beautiful painting. It's among the first commissions he receives. It's an altarpiece. It was painted for the Jesuit seminary in Antwerp, chapel that, that would have been there at the seminary. And to my mind, its most remarkable feature is the intensity of color that Rubens is bringing to this. That and the sense of palpable flesh in the angels in particular. The scene shows, as was convention, Mary's been at reading the scripture and the angel Gabriel has rushed into the room, in this case from the right. He's, he's swooping in and it, it puts him in a sort of genuflecting pose. He has this incredibly colored orange robe that's fluttering behind him. And when you see the painting in person, you realize that the, the nuances of shifting color that Rubens has applied, often with a, an orange-yellow, is very, it's very broadly applied. And the way Rubens renders these feathers on Gabriel's wing are, are rendered almost with impasto squares of paint. And it's, it's an incredible tour de force of uh, refined application of paint and sense of highlight, particularly in Gabriel's hair, and this highly painterly application in other parts of the figure as well as, as I mentioned, the, the softness of the flesh, the, the left arm of Gabriel is it almost dissolves at its edges. And then up above, you have these, these winged, smaller winged angels where Rubens is really showing off that, that sense of palpable flesh that he gets, an almost translucent sense of skin with, with blood pulsing right beneath. And Mary seems to be taken aback, which I, you know, again, I'm not a scholar of Northern European painting or anything, but I, when, when I think of enunciations in Northern painting, I think of a much more static Mary, uh, someone who's mid-prayer and almost not surprised, and here she's stunned. That's fair. You know, often when we think of the Annunciation or other scenes from the life of Mary or the life of Christ, we... We do think of every every player knows his or her part, and and we're all headed to the foreordained conclusion. And in this scene, Rubens really does draw out. Uh, he's not the first artist to do this. You know, you get this you know Titian's Annunciation for San Salvador. You also get uh, a sense of the Virgin's. You know that that this invasion of her bedchamber is is potentially violent, potentially, uh, certainly off-putting. And Rubens captures a sense of that also. You know, she's turning from her prayer book and leaning back. Her face is a little more impassive, not, not shocked, I would say, but definitely guarded and waiting to see what, what comes of this infusion of heavenly light that's just entered her bedroom. And, and she's marking her place in, in, in her book. I mean, she's, she's, she, she holds on to that even as, she's, even as she's surprised. I mean, there are lots of great little details. The, the, the last painting I want to bring up is what surely in Rubens's time, as well as in ours, was a grand entertainment, uh, the boar hunt. How many boar hunts does Rubens paint? Why does he paint them? And, and what makes this one so much fun? He returns to the subject a, a number of times. The, the version in our show comes from the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Marseille, and it's one of four hunting scenes, not all boar hunts, that went to the Duke of Bavaria. But in other contexts, Rubens is very interested in playing out this scene, particularly as it relates to the labors of Hercules. Hercules slaying the Caledonian boar was one of his 12 labors. So in, in various contexts, Rubens is playing up the, in the boar hunt that, that we're exhibiting here in San Francisco and that will go to Toronto as well. 
you have these themes that draw on on mythology, on that uh, labor of Hercules, but also certainly it's a subject that's very appropriate to royalty because it was it was royalty that owned the land and owned everything on the land and could determine who could hunt and what they could hunt. And so it's a, it's a particularly appropriate subject for royal courts. The upper right-hand corner of the painting in your show is almost, I mean, it's really surprising once the viewer's eyes gets there, get there. It's not where we look first. It's not where the action is, but it's kind of a, kind of creates a dual scene in a way. What's going on up there? So you have these characters who have ridden in on horses that seem almost to belong to another age, a more contemporary time based on their dress. They're, they look very different from uh, some of the hunters, particularly those at left that are more rustically dressed. Uh, one almost seems to have worn a, a kind of wrap, not exactly a toga, but something of another era. And you do get a sense of this activity being almost diachronic, you know, that this is something that connects way back to, to ancient history, but that is still participated in today by the elite class and, and partly for that, uh, that tradition and, and history of epic triumph. Yeah, they're, they're watching, you know, the hunt is going on, they're watching the hunt, we're watching them, and the kind of opposite figure on the far side of the canvas is one of the rustic-looking chaps blowing a horn, and so there's kind of this reference to looking, being seen, and, and the violence, and the one thing that, that, is, that, that we can't do is, is hear the horn. You know, there, there, there are these multiple references to senses, and some of which we can engage with visually, of course, but some of which we, we are called to imagine. It's, uh, it's quite a thing. Kirk Nickel, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.